This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-hosts are Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. And in the studio with me today is Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have another interesting show, The Markets. Uh, Professor Siegel, do uh, a lot of volatility we have. The coronavirus news keeps uh, infecting the market here, and we also have uh, sort of a, a jobs report, but people are sort of looking past that. What's, uh, what is your read of the current situation here? Okay, well, let's first comment on the jobs report. There's, there's no question that it, it's in the rear view mirror, as the saying goes, um, and, you know, there's nothing in it that reflects at all the coronavirus. What's in, important about it, it was a very strong report. And, and yes, there was a little bit of a pump up of uh, numbers because of the Census Bureau and very good weather that pumped construction up, but even uh, abstracting, very strong. What's important is we're going into a downturn. You want the patient to be as healthy as possible. If anyone, that's the first thing doctors tell you. If anyone's going to get sick, going in being healthy is a much better prognosis uh, than not. So we are going to have a downturn, but the economy is standing uh, on on very strong um, a bit, a basis going into that uh, downturn. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, listen, uh, uh, yeah, we were we were down much more. We're now down 550 on the Dow, and then we were down 800, 900 early on. We could drop another five ten percent, and that would be in the bear market territory if we did. I'm not saying it's impossible. Um, but I, I want people to realize again, and this is very important, long-term assets, as much chaos as there may be this year, and yes, there might be a recession, um, and a number of experts say it's 50-50, um, earnings could be off 20 or 30%, but if they bounce back in 2021, uh, we should not see, uh, we should see a great recovery. We should not see any more significant declines. Fear will cause it to go down in the short run. I mean, people think, oh, my God, if earnings are off this year 30%, maybe the stock market should be down 30%. No, not if you expect a recovery in 2021. That should, that should not happen. Fear might drive it down, but then you're going to have one of the buying opportunities of a lifetime uh, the, uh, or, or certainly of the decade, to say the least. So, um, yeah, fear will, will continue to drive this. Uh, we may not have seen the lows on stock prices, but I think one very interesting fact, which even surprised me, uh, uh, China is getting its epidemic well under control. Uh, we could we, we could talk about that, but I, I, one of the interesting things is that the uh, the Shanghai Composite, which is the most popular Chinese stock index, is now higher than it was last November before they ever even recorded their first uh, virus case. Yes, they had a sharp drop, but with under control, it has bounced back. Uh, so one should keep that in mind when one uh, thinks about a longer-term uh, implications of uh, the coronavirus. Now, you know, one of the things that, that China did, you can question if they did it too quickly or quick enough, um, but they basically shut down, you know, a lot of the provinces. People weren't allowed to leave the houses. People question, can they do that in the U.S.? Will they do that in the U.S.? You're starting to see some companies starting to see signs of that, you know, things yeah. in, in West Coast. Yeah, telling people to work at home. 
you, you uh, had an idea on this yeah, on what they I mean, should we do. We don't have the author, you know, but you know there there is a case to cause a, a shutdown for for four weeks, move everything up, uh, you know, on on a schedule. I mean, I, I don't think it's you know, I mean, this would be a chance where we could stop it in its tracks, but you know that would be emergency type of measures that you know have really never been imposed in the United States. Um, it's almost like martial law in the sense that you know that that the, you know that people would be in, in confined and only go out to buy food essentials be tested all the time and then you wait the four to six weeks for the virus to die out that is what china is doing and so far signs of success uh of course when uh there uh, you know when we we will see when people come back to work whether there's a flare-up or not there but certainly uh in every single metric so far has been met with success in china after a bumbling start uh they have moved quickly. Uh, and uh, do we have the will to do that? Should we do that? And that's a decision that has to be made. But uh, even in that case, you know, a, a, a total two-month shutdown of the economy, uh, which would probably push us in a recession if it clears the virus and people, you know, by the summer and everything feel safe again. Wow. I mean, uh, clear skies ahead on that. I'm not saying we should go there, but it's something that should not be dismissed. And by the way, the economic implications are not for the market to then totally tank into a you know 2009 bear market. Actually, I might add, Professor, is that um we I think if there's more coordination in in terms of people staying at home, um we don't have to do the you know martial arts way uh, still mm-hmm. achieve. The social distancing, which is required to slow and stop this virus. Yeah, well, the Kuan, yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, I've been. We have some Chinese uh, 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 professors here. I've been talking to their family back there, and and, and all the rest. I, I I I have some admiration of how they've reacted subsequently to an initial bungling, we could say, or you know, not admitting it, and they could have probably stopped it in Wuhan. Uh, had they re- re- really reacted quickly, but that's water over the dam. After that, there's there's definitely signs of of, uh, of of stabilization there, and their markets have totally uh, bounced back. I mean, I, you know, I, I that 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 is a big surprise to me. We should also point out, as we because we do weekly week by week, you know, the Super Tuesday events of Biden's comeback is good for the markets. Uh, we talked about Sanders would not have been a good candidate. And now, you know, the markets are pretty overwhelmingly for Biden, um, a, a moderate uh, c- coming in there. Uh, and clearly we saw a, a rally partly in the health stocks as a result of that. So that is a, a favorable uh, development going uh, forward. Uh, more turmoil ahead as, as, as we try to grapple with this. And socially, you know, what should, should we go to a Chinese solution or not? Is is, is should be something that is discussed. Another uh, model might be like in Korea, that you know, much wider testing and faster. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's very disappointing, and and you know that we don't have more kits available for testing and keeping people home and really, and we should have support for people who have to be kept home and won't get paid at that time, and we should be able to to give them support because we need the cooperation of everybody to control this epidemic. Professor, one final question for you here. I mean, the uh, the drop in bond yields, uh, this negative beta asset tenure at 73 basis points as I'm looking at it. Yes. Unbelievable. Uh, It is, uh, Jeremy. uh, we we've been talking about it. It it, it is the uh, hedge asset of choice, <laughs> um, and everyone rushes to it. And they they say it's my hedge. That's where I'm rushing. Instead of cash, I'll go to the ten year treasury. I'm going to get a capital gain. Why 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 should my I just go to cash? Uh, cash I get nothing. Um, uh, actually, you get one percent right now on cash because you know the Fed did lower. But I mean, um, uh, yeah, they're they're rushing to that, and we've talked. So much about it, and it is just absolutely there. This could drive the ten-year negative. Um, uh, I don't think so, uh, but I, I, it's certainly not an impossible one. 
because, uh, you know, I'll hold a hedge asset no, you know, no matter what kind of return I have. So this is the good part because if there's any fiscal, if we need any fiscal stimulus, a tax cut, a payroll tax cut or something like that, let's find it, finance it at 0% interest rates, which is what it would be, which would be nice uh, going forward. We don't need to go that far yet, although there are some fiscal measures that are being discussed. Larry Kudlow said even he was open to it. Actually, the market rallied 400 points on that statement. We've got to be open to fiscal. We've got to be open to a payroll tax cut. Uh, we've got to be open to really actively helping those people who don't get a paycheck from corporations that will keep on coming whether they stay home or not. Very good, Professor. Always thank you. glad to have you uh, give us some commentary. We'll talk to you next week. We're going to bring in our first guest here, Manish Singh, who's the Chief Investment Officer at Crossbridge Capital, calling us from London. Thanks for staying late in the office on a Friday, Manish. Uh, Welcome back to our program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for some patience with the professor starting off the show. Um, Give us maybe our listeners a little bit about uh, Crossbridge Capital, your role overseeing capital there. Give us a little bit about yourself and the company before we, we drill into your worldviews here. Sure. Thanks, Jeremy. So Crossbridge Capital, we are a wealth manager. So our clients have private clients and we manage their money. Uh, we have around $4 billion of assets under supervision. And we are based in three offices in London and in Singapore and in Monaco. Uh, I would say my investment style is top down. So a lot of focus on macro factors, uh, central banks, policy, inflation, fiscal and monetary policy. And largely, I, I do large cap stocks in U.S. and Europe. And any other market, we would do ETF. Uh, we do use a lot of structured notes as well. So we make use of derivatives and notes uh, to, to enhance our uh, profile of products or payoff that we want to do. Uh, but largely, very much top-down focus and uh, using few stocks and really following those stocks and spending a lot of time on macro. Well, what a time to be a macro and uh, sort of political coming from Europe. A lot going on in the European markets. Like, How are you... Uh, reacting to the short-term volatility, this sort of big drop in interest rates and, and the equity volatility. What's your, your top-down view here? Yeah, uh, Jeremy, of course, you know, we, you were just talking about the 10-year yield and 30-year yield with Professor Siegel, and I, I was listening to it. And I do agree that, you know, the yields could possibly uh, go lower as we, we see Japanification of the whole Western world. And, and we've had this discussion here at work, and my view has been that Ten-year yield probably is heading to 0.5 or lower. And this, I was having this conversation three months ago without realizing it will get there so sooner or at least it will be knocking on the door uh, in that sense. However, I have one caveat to make. I, I, my expectation of that was over medium term, not very short term, because, I mean, what has happened now in terms of people buying uh, safe haven assets and rushing into it is obviously driven by this unknown of coronavirus and nobody knows uh, what this is going to be, and this is this is truly one of the unknowns, you know, that you, that you talk in terms of risk. It is not quite like 2008, where there was leverage in the market, there was a need of liquidity and, and various other needs that had to be fulfilled. So in that respect, this is truly a risk, you know, which you don't see. And it comes to strikes you, so it's difficult to comprehend how bad it can be. Having said that, I do have complete faith in authorities, you know, that they're going to act. Uh, my view is that you are probably... Uh, just around the corner to get some fiscal measures. So I think short sellers have to be extremely careful. And I, I, I said this on my tweet and my post on LinkedIn as well, is that you have to be extremely careful how short you are because, because fiscal me- measures could overwhelm you. And I do expect that there will be some improvement in terms of when we go down the summer in terms of the rate of casualty and the expansion and the, uh, of, of the virus that we are seeing as there will be some control. We are already seeing that in China, as you have discussed in, in the first segment. Yeah, I mean, the sort of promise of fiscal coming from Europe is one of the things that people are talking about, like, when will Germany get motivated? Uh, Where do you see fiscal, the impulse coming from Europe? How how do you see that playing out? So I would say that, you know, uh, in terms of the the stability pact, the fiscal pact that is there in the eurozone, uh, that is being questioned now, whether how, how much you should stick to it. Now, one thing you can be careful that it will not be abandoned, because if you abandon that, then, of course, all the Germans will be in, in outcry saying that, oh, God knows how much money the, the Southerners in terms of the French and the Italians and the Greeks they're going to spend. So there will be semblance of there is a pact. There will be loosening of the pact. It could be loosened by 1%, 2%, depending on you know, what they think is appropriate. Uh, in Eurozone, everything comes at a very snail's pace. So I think they will look at the data. Data doesn't look very good. 
even before the coronavirus thing happened in Europe, uh, Germany was on the brink of recession. Eurozone health has not been very good on the back of slowdown in China. So the, the impetus is there. But again, I, as we have seen with Eurozone, they don't do anything immediately. They take time. So they will probably see some more data and then you're going to see action. But they will be loosening of the stability pact. I have no doubt in my mind. Otherwise, they'll have a deep recession and that will lead to other problems. So to avoid that, they will be loosening of the pact. Hi, Manish. This is Li Chen. Um, uh, in terms of physical stimulus, like in which channels do you see how, you know, European stimulus could work? Given that currently, you know, usually when people think about physical stimulus, it goes through consumption. But, you know, consumption is not going to be the the sector that's lifting. Uh, so in which channels do you, do you see this uh, stimulus could potentially help the European economy? So I, I would say two things, right? I would say that Probably first, it will be it will be directed towards companies and businesses who might get, get into trouble uh, in terms of if they have less uh, less cash flow coming in. So I think it will be targeted in that sense. Second, I would also say that there should be increase in government spending in general, so you keep more people in job. I mean, look at things like if uh, my view is that this virus is not just a one-off thing. If we don't have a cure for this, then in the summer the numbers may go down, but this might as well return in October. If you don't have enough enough uh, hospital capacity, enough uh, trained physicians, I was talking to some people in Parma in Italy, and they are saying that there the beds are completely full, and you can't take anyone else in ICUs or if there is any serious illness. So if you really think that you know these are things which could overwhelm the system, because so far we have seen that well, we seem to have control on everything, uh, and that may not be the case. So you're going to see some targeted spending from government side as well in terms of public health spending, and which is I I have a feeling that. Going forward, you are going to see more spending on healthcare, not just here, but in the U.S. as well, just given what has happened now. So it could be targeted towards companies, it could be targeted towards wages, tax cuts, it could be targeted towards general public spending. I would see those forums where it's going to happen, not as much in terms of, I would say, interest rate cuts alone, because I don't see that really adds a lot of value, but really helping the industry. Well, let me just introduce our guest. We're talking with Manish Singh, who's the Chief Investment Officer, Crossbridge Capital, based in London, offices uh, in Singapore, you mentioned. Uh, Manish, when, with negative rates that you guys have in Europe, like shouldn't they be borrowing as much as they physically can, get some positive return on borrowing? Well, that, that's absolutely true, but, but this is what it is, right? Because there's, even though the rates are negative, but none of these, I'm talking only about Eurozone, yeah. you do not have a full control over your own policies in terms of how much debt you could issue, right? So that's the big problem that they have. And then there are all these target two balances, the way these debts are accounted when it is printed by each central bank. And that seem, that just not seem to be the case. And there is complete lack of leadership because even if you look at Germany, Chancellor Merkel is on her way out. Her party is very unpopular. She had a successor who has stepped down. So there is a lack of this... this uh, political stability as well, which is complicating things. So they need, they need to build that case. And then, of course, they seem to be overwhelmed in terms of China's slowdown and how they're going to reshape their economy, given their over-reliance on auto sector and exports to China. So those are things, you know, and there is a complete orthodoxy in policymaking, which has been for a long time. Even if you look at European banks, I mean, they have never had any by way of recognizing that they have bad debt. I mean, they have not solved their problem compared to the U.S. ones, which have recapitalized, and you can see the difference between the American and European bank. So there is an orthodoxy of policy, which takes a lot of time to shift. And therefore, while I think that a, a deep crisis could bring about that change, I would still not be sure that how quickly it would come. And then it will probably be debated endlessly, but then they will have to do it, because there is no other measure. The the um when so when you think about you know, the the other news story of the day um and and, and clearly there's a huge demand impact here and you sort of see a lot of less travel but oil prices are really collapsing I think maybe people were, had more expectations for the OPEC meeting that was taking place uh, last few days any thoughts on what's happening in oil is the is the collapse I mean the energy sector and the equity markets have been by far the worst performers this year. Uh, do you think this is sort of overreactions? Do you think it's a value story? What, what's your what's your, uh, your your read of it? So, so my my belief is that there is plenty of supply of oil. So I'm I'm, I'm bearish on oil uh, on energy as such, and, and especially you know where you're going, you're seeing the growth is not catching up. So if there is a growth rebound, then probably you're going to see oil prices stabilize. But I think that energy is, has a multi-year challenge, not just because there is a lot of uh, 
supply, the, the, the cartel has broken down, opaque cartel has broken down, there's a lot of supply, and also there's, there's a natural shift from fossil fuel towards ele- electronic vehicles and electric, which is probably going to continue, in my opinion, and especially being driven by Germany and especially being driven by China. So there's a natural bearish thing to it. Now, the only way to look at for an energy company is that how far they are going away from fossil fuel to really doing other things. So if you look in Norway, Norway gets, I believe, almost 70% of energy from fossil fuel. So you are seeing big country, uh, uh, an energy-rich countries really moving away and seeing what is the energy of the future. You have seen British Petroleum in the UK announced that they're going to meet the targets, uh, carbon neutral targets, I believe, by 2040. So you're seeing a major shift in terms of how you how the new world is going to look like and companies who would rely on old energy or the fossil fuel moving on to what is going to be the energy of the future. So there is a there is a disconnect between what is happening on oil price and energy companies will totally depend on what these energy companies are in the future, whether they turn into electric and, and battery powered companies or not in terms of their energy use. So there's going to be but in my in my belief, oil prices are not going to rally, oil price is going to get stuck here and if they do deep cuts, then maybe there will be a bounce back, but I don't have a very positive view on, on oil price staying higher. For, for as the markets have been you know, very volatile, do you think about reacting, taking opportunities to add, subtract uh, your clients, um, calling with a lot of concerns? Like, How are you thinking about navigating this market volatility for people? Sure. So I was I just I, I just tweeted something this morning where I looked at, even if you look, if you chart the S&P 500 price, uh, alongside the NYSE down volume, I, what percentage of the stocks had a down volume? I mean, that number at this time is at 90%. And if you look at the chart going back to 1997, because that's the data I could get, every time it has been at 80% or above, you've had a positive rally and the market has been higher 12 months after. And on average, between 10 to 20%. I mean, it is stunning the level of sell-off we have seen and level of down market we have seen. But again, these are all based on data. The sentiment is what counts. I have I have a feeling that you know we live in a world which is so much driven by visual and social media that we, we fail to comprehend. We overestimate everything. In the sense that if there's a bad news, we just we just expect there's going to be a complete debacle. So it's very difficult to get your head around and feel positive. And you see more negative and and pessimism if I see everywhere in terms of media and social media than optimism and as it is it has been difficult to be optimist but then you see a lot of these things happening and you know i mean uh, it's funny that i if i look at my like i i have a young family my my son is four and a half uh, five months old and my daughter is three and a half and when i look at the refugee situation on the border in in greece where now the syrian refugees are coming in i saw a video of a one-year-old girl being gassed you know when the, when the gas was being sprayed by the police and i felt so shocked that I would have signed up on these these family getting asylum. This is so different to what I was four years ago when I didn't have a family, when I didn't have a kid, and I was I was very ultra conservative and centre right. So I can see that I am being so rational in, in disassociating myself, but on certain issues I just give into what I see in media, and I see exactly that's what's happening in pessimism. Terms. I do believe that you know, well nobody knows how worse this coronavirus is going to be, but I believe there will be overreaction. And by which I mean that, you know, there will be overreaction from on fiscal side as well. The government will have to continue, come in and spend. And rightly so, you might as well overreact in supporting the economy than not. And I have a feeling you will be probably having 1998-99 like structure where you had the Asian financial crisis, the LTCM and Russian default, and the rates were cut. And within seven months, Fed was raising rates. That's my belief which is going to happen. And we have to be very careful about it. So, in short term, as Professor Siegel also mentioned, I mean, you could have a 5-10% correction more, nobody knows. But I am very positive in terms of medium term and where S&P is going to be uh, by the end of the year. I mean, so I am buying, doing some, you know, uh, um, uh, bottom fishing and stocks like Costco. And I love this stock I've had for a long time. So you're looking at stocks and you're buying the good ones, the blue chip ones. I'm not a big buyer of treasury unless, you know, it's part of your allocation portfolio and you need to have bonds. I would rather buy blue chip stocks with good dividend with a view that yeah, I'm buying in 10% cheaper. That's the strategy I'm using at this time. Um, I have one follow-up question. Um, just based on your knowledge of, of different European countries, which one would you, th- uh, like, given this uh, situation, wh- which ones do you think uh, could weather this better than the others? Sure. I mean, uh, I in my portfolio, I'm overweight to U.S., uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm generally underweight to Europe because of everything that is happening even before coronavirus. But if I was to choose 
uh, one country or, or two country in, in, in Europe, I would choose the UK and I would choose France. And UK, obviously, because we are out of EU and we have a plan, and you're going to see this budget uh, which comes next thir- next Wednesday on 11th. And I have a view that you know you're going to see stimulus stimulus from the government by in terms of lowering the stamp duty, getting the housing sector moving, and a lot of tax rationalisation which is going to happen. And the reason I say France because France has some real champion companies, you know, industrial luxury and everything, which are global suppliers. They're not just for the domestic market. So when you buy into stocks like one C, LBMH, different thing. You're buying it in the global market. So I love those French, those French stocks, and I like the UK economy because I think the UK economy is poised to do well going forward, given we have a majority government and a government which has a policy to really drive growth and do spending, extra spending if need be, because we run 1% deficit, unlike many in Eurozone that is running 3% or 2.5%. There's headroom for UK to spend. Why not Germany? Well, I mean, Germany, you know... Uh, I have questions about the index. I'm not a big investor in the in the stock market over there. Uh, of course, auto auto sector has a completely different story, and we have to see what they want to do about it. They have very few other names. I mean, financials. I'm not touching anything in eurozone. I have one or two which I want to get out of, but I'm not touching anything. But I really generally like industrial name, global consumer name, global luxury name, and those I find more in France than in Germany. How about alternatives? Are you thinking about other hedges? Like with this volatility, I mean, I think the the sort of breakouts you're seeing gold go to highs with basically just being correlated to rates in some ways with the negative rates. They have a positive carry over in Europe. Um, any other things that you're thinking about to, to hedge the volatility? Uh, not, not as much really because my, our strategy has been more in terms of picking investment from a 12-month horizon. Yeah. So fortunately, we don't look at things from weekly or monthly basis alone, and which, which gives me the luxury to have more drawdown than at a typical hedge fund or a long-short strategy. So that helps us do that. So my focus has been purely in terms of looking at medium term to see that we have the right stocks in the portfolio and right bonds in the portfolio. And that's what I'm trying to do. So in this market, I'm trying to rebalance my portfolio towards stocks that I like, towards a combination of exposure that I like, we don't do much hedging and we don't do much cross-currency play because uh, we mostly have dollar portfolios, so we don't take into account you know, how euro-dollar rates are going to impact us and do that as a trade. And so, so the U.S. is a place – we haven't talked emerging markets at all, and uh, sort of China showing relative strength I think would surprise people. They don't think of China as like a safe haven uh, amidst all this volatility, but any how, – how are you thinking about the, the emerging markets – uh, so I am I am underweight emerging market. It has been for some time now. And having said that, uh, generally, I mean, I believe that, well, uh, given the uncertainty, uncertainty that's around, and my view has been that the dollar would be stronger at the beginning of the year, which we did see. And now, of course, the rates have been cut. So we are seeing some weakness in dollar. But I do not believe that you will have a lot of weakness in dollar. So there are questions around other parts in emerging market, how they are going to perform. And therefore, it keeps me away. Now, if you look at what happened, what what is happening in India, that you have the fourth largest bank, which is the private sector, being taken over by RBI. I mean, those do raise questions. So I always look at it from point of view of the risk that I am happy to carry on my book. So if I have a large cap U.S. stock, which I truly believe in, is a great stock like Costco or any other name, then I'm happy to take a 10%, 20% drawdown in that because I know I'm going to make it back. But I'm not going to take specific risk on single stocks in emerging market that I don't cover, that I don't have a research team to look at, which is why we do single stock only in U.S. and Europe, and we don't do single stocks anywhere apart from the mentioned names I mentioned to you in China, but then those are global names which we can track and data uh, from the listing NYSE. So that's our general strategy. So I am underweight emerging market purely because I don't cover them very specifically on single stock basis. Very good. Uh, we've, we've got a lot of good topics here we've covered. Any sort of closing thoughts, anything where they can find you to keep in touch with your work or, or any other things we, we didn't cover yet? Uh, sure. Thanks, Jeremy. So I write a monthly newsletter, which is called Market Viewpoints, and that's available on our website. So I would I would suggest that people who are interested can take a read of that. I do discuss macro topic in that, you know, what's happening. That's the monthly. Apart from that, I do post on my LinkedIn page and also on my Twitter page. So I'm very happy to engage with the listeners in anything that they may want to discuss there. Very good. Thanks, Manish, for for joining us for today. Thank you very much for having me. 
I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, in the studio with Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha Wisdom Tree. We're going to welcome our second guest, Dave Donabedian. He's the Chief Investment Officer of CIBC Private Wealth Management. He's served in that capacity for over the last decade. He's a returning guest. Dave, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, so lots of volatility, lots of uh, a lot of things going on in the markets here, Dave. How are you w- looking at the world? How are you suggesting clients to navigate all this volatility? Well, there's certainly been uh, been plenty of it. I, I think we you know we, we start with some um, perspective on where we are. So uh, you know the, the stock market is down about nine percent this year at, at the moment, and you can look at that and say, well, that's not good, and obviously it's not good. Um, but that is in the context of an 11-year bull market in which we've had about a 460% cumulative return. So it's not the end of the world either. Um, and in terms of you know, where we may be headed, our, our view on um, coronavirus, is, and again, we're long-term investors, not traders, but our view has been, uh, in terms of the markets, and any kind of sustainable trend in the markets, uh, the key will be whether this all leads to a, a true sustained uh, economic recession. And, um, you know, I, I would say that uh, the, the odds of that, just in terms of leading indicators, um, have risen, probably not at 50% yet, but, but they've risen here just in the last 48 hours because we've seen, uh, you know, the credit markets, which had generally been well-behaved through all this, uh, you know, start to misbehave a little bit. We've seen the high-yield uh, uh, credit spreads widen out, even investment-grade credit spreads widen out um, quite a bit here, uh, credit default swap rates and so forth, and, and just the sheer uh, magnitude and swiftness of changes in the Treasury market, right, with, you know, overnight 12 and 15 and 18 basis point drops in, uh, in, in Treasury yields. It's, it's telling you that there's an awful lot of fear out there. Yeah. Um, so our message to clients is, you know, focus on the economy. Our, our baseline assumption is that it's inevitable that we're going to see uh, disruption as a result of, of the rising coronavirus situation, and it is going to get worse before it gets better. Um, we take some comfort from the fact that, and, and the employment data today reinforces it, that we come into this crisis with an economy that was, was fundamentally sound. And obviously, the, you know, financial markets today don't care about that. But I think that actually is really important when we think about the, the outlook over the course of the year. Um, a, a, a strong economy does not um, um, mean you avoid a downturn in the economy if you get an exogenous shock like, like we have. But it can mitigate how bad it gets, and it can improve the odds that when things do smooth out a little bit, you get a, a sharp, strong recovery. And that, that is our... That is our view of what you know what the second half of the year may look like. It's going to be really dicey from now to say mid-year, um, but I expect we'll see uh, second half of the year stronger economic growth and, and from the stock market's perspective, perhaps rising earnings revisions. But uh, you know, we are not there yet. You know the I mean obviously there's a lot of sellers in the marketplace today, but I'm curious from do you do your private wealth managers see people calling? and sort of panicking? Do you see people trying to shift their equations, or do you see sort of buy-the-dip mentality people going to try to say, well, I, maybe I missed some of it. I had some cash on the sidelines. It's time to put some of that back to work. How do you see the behavior of your clients so far? Well, you, you framed the question beautifully because the, the answer is we're, we're hearing some of both. Not, I wouldn't call any of it panic, but we're certainly getting people saying, gosh, this, is, this feels unsteady, and is it going to get worse, and should we be taking risk off the table? Um, we've had just as many inquiries on the other side, more akin to, gosh, this volatility is ridiculous. Um, you know, this must be an overreaction. There, there, there must be opportunities. And you know, our response to that has been um, avoid the extremes. We don't think uh, panic makes any sense here because uh, you know the economy is fundamentally sound, and um, the at some point the coronavirus impact will peak and then and then fall. Um, but we also don't think it's 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 time to say, gosh, this you know tremendous undervalued situation has developed in the markets. We need to, you know, jump in with both feet because when you look at it, uh, yes, we've had a, a pullback in the market, but we were at an all-time high barely two weeks ago. And when you adjust, you know, earnings lower, which is the appropriate thing to do for this year, and you look at where you know 
the, the market is now. The market's a little cheaper than it was when we were at all-time highs two weeks ago, but, but not that much. So what we're saying is you know, avoid the extremes. Um, if, as an investor, you, you kind of let your winners run last year, and we had a, you know, a 30% year in equities, well, your equity position may have uh, you know, sort of naturally risen above uh, its target, you know, since the beginning of the year, our message has been rebalanced back down to target. We would still, uh, we would still say that, um, you know, which is potentially taking a little bit of risk off the table. Um, but, but we're basically saying, you know, c- kind of be where you should be for the long term, not less, not more. Um, is there within the equities, you know, are there things, are you, are you thinking about the things that have been hit the hardest, things like the energy sector, the, the banks who are moving with rates and the sort of global cyclicals, or is it time to hide out the, the utilities, the defensives, um, which have been, you know, relatively calm during this storm or relative, you know, doing much better than, than sort of the, that other end of the spectrum? Well, I think, yeah, as much as big asset allocation moves don't make sense here, um, within an equity portfolio, it's been an opportunity for, um, you know, potentially a lot of value-creating action. Um, and some of it is sector-related, which I'll get to in a minute, but the, the, the biggest thing is simply, um, you know, looking across industries and individual companies, uh, looking at the, you know, extent of the declines and saying, hey, are there some really high-quality companies that we've wanted to own for years but haven't been comfortable with the price that have now reached that price? That's an opportunity. Um, are there other companies that, that maybe haven't fully priced in the risks that they may face in this environment over the next couple of quarters? And those would be ones to, to, to trim or move. So within our equity strategies, yeah, there's been, there's been a fair amount of activity here over the last, uh, over the last two to three weeks. Um, you know, sectors are a little tougher. I'll tell you, we are not leaning into the, the bond substitutes here, the consumer staples, the utilities, the, the, the REITs. Um, we, we think they continue to be, first of all, they're not actually bond substitutes. Um, I actually hate that expression, but it, but it gets used all the time. Um, they are mostly rich relative to their, their growth potential. And you know, if you're invested in the equity market, the whole looking for a place to hide mentality doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If your mentality is, you know, I need a place to hide, then maybe reducing your overall equity exposure, you know, just to, to sort of meet your, uh, um, your, your psyche is, is, is the thing to do. Um, we, we still look for where is their value and, and where is that, where is their, you know, growth at a reasonable price. And, and we still find some of that in the, um, uh, in the information technology, certain parts of the information technology marketplace. We find some of it in healthcare, even though you've seen a you know a relative rally in some of those names uh, since the you know the the odds of uh, Senator Sanders becoming president have been at least conventional wisdom has, has low, lowered the odds of that. Um, financials we think look relatively attractive, um, and you know one important point is yes the the general level of yield have, have plummeted here. Um, the yield curve is actually a little steeper than what we've seen at, at various points in time over the last couple of years. So there are definitely some challenges there with the financials, um, but the, the valuation looks looks quite attractive. You could say the same thing about uh, you know about the energy sector on a, on a valuation perspective. The um, the macro and even micro headwinds there though are um, are, are substantial. So while the valuations are tempting. Um, you know, we're not actually jumping in there and, and increasing weightings yet in any any meaningful way. Yeah, the energy sector is interesting. The uh, you get Professor Siegel has talked a lot about on our show that he thinks the long term expected return from sort of U.S. equities today, with you know twenty P/E ratios looking backwards, and uh, you know call it a five percent real yield, five percent earnings yield. Um, you know, and you get dividend yields on the energy stocks. You got some of the big caps are like six to seven. Um, so now they're that's sort of forecasting a you could say a cut or otherwise if even if they had no price gains just you just get the seven percent income um, looking forward it's sort of interesting it is it is and it, you know there are very and that really gets more to the kind of the secular view than you know whatever the price of oil and today's you know demand forecasts are um, there's one that says this is a um, you know a industry that is, is you know going to lose market share quote-unquote, to renewables, but only slowly over time. 
And if you have global economic growth, volumes actually continue to to, to, to grow, and, and that would be the bull case. The, the bear case is that that loss of market share is going to happen much faster. Um, and, and you know, you've got just, just on a secular basis way more supply than demand. And ESG um, investors divesting from oil? Exactly, and, and a, you know, a, a, perhaps a, a declining investor base. We're talking with Dave Donabedian, who's the CIO of, of CIBC Private Wealth Management, about, about his views on the on the world, the global economy today. Dave, when, when I, I think you mentioned liking financials there, and with rates moving, you know, I think they've been they've been hit from that perspective. Do you think there's a real fundamental case between those levels of interest rates, sort of the ten-year yield, and financials, or do the, does it just trade that way? No, I think you. Um yeah, I mean, I think it can have a direct impact on um, you know loan margins and that the sort of the, the spread between um, d- deposit rates and, and loan rates. A lot of that though goes more to the shape of the yield curve than it does the the, the level of interest rates. And um, you know that that situation isn't good, but as I said, uh, we've had periods of, of more stress in terms of the, the shape of the yield curve at you know two or three different points over the last couple of years than. Um, than if you look today. So, I mean, I think the, you know, that is an overhang um, for the financials, but the other one here is if you've got people worrying about, um, you know, about recession over the next uh, few months, there'll be concern about that, you know, essentially a a lack of loan demand and, at least for some institutions, perhaps concerns about, you know, credit quality of their existing portfolio if you begin to see, you know, stresses emerge within the, the U.S. business community. Those are the those are the concerns. Yeah. Now you you like the U.S. So do, well, where do you when you think about the global equity pie? Like, is there regions that you tend to favor over the others? Things you're absolutely avoiding with all this uh, this volatility? Yeah, we've um, and this is before the the you know coronavirus um, crisis. In, in terms of our non-U.S. equity allocation, we've really been um, encouraging. Our, our clients to move more to emerging markets and less toward the uh, developed international markets, which of course essentially means Europe and Japan. And um, the reason being relative valuations, relative growth potential, um, and um, you know that actually, if you look at it on a narrow basis, that's actually held up despite the the you know obvious fact that the you know China is the epicenter of of this uh, COVID nineteen crisis. Um, its stock market in recent weeks has actually held up better than ours, uh, better than Europe's, and perhaps because there's some sense that the, uh, the, the crisis there has peaked and you're beginning to see some signs of, um, you know, outside of uh, Hubei province of people actually going back to work and some slow signs of, of, of normalization. So um, and we wouldn't buy emerging markets just because of that, but point is the, the idea that... Uh, you know, China is a big albatross to investing in the emerging markets. The you know worst of that, uh, or the strongest argument for that, may be in, in the rearview mirror. So, uh, whereas if you look at the, the developed international markets, um, you know the, the economy was not in good shape in most of Europe or, or Japan coming into this. It was uh, kind of one you know one one slip on the banana peel, maybe away from recession anyway, and and here we have it. So. Um, I think you have to, you know, put a pretty significant percentage risk on of outright recession in some of the key European countries in Japan, probably more than 50%. Um, and so we'd be more inclined to look at emerging markets that just have, despite all the near-term volatility, just have better secular growth potential. Very good. Chen, any any questions to jump in here? Yeah. Um. Hi. Um. I do have a question in terms of when you are thinking about China or, or emerging market, the you know the universe is so concentrated. Um. Like uh, the top, you know, five six companies is really the benchmark. If you tie to the benchmark, um, then your decision might be a little bit different from uh, longer term. Like, how do you like look at emerging market like specifically? Well, it's a great a great question. Um. And we, you know, we we select uh, we, we do some um, emerging market investing in part of our our non-U.S. portfolio, but then ad- additionally we select emerging market specialists from the outside and, and bring them to to our our clients' access. So we 
believe very much in active management, which means that you know we're not looking to be like the index. And to your point, if you look at the the indexes, the index in China, it's very very heavily weighted toward state owned or at least partially state owned, state influenced companies, and particularly with the big banks. So um, we're not really following that. The the, the large banks are unattractive for about a hundred different reasons in China. Uh, we've been, uh, our managers have been more focused on uh, sort of the, the, the building um, enrichment of, of the middle class in China, so more consumer-oriented companies, some industrial companies, but more consumer-oriented companies. So the allocations really don't look like the benchmark, but we're very comfortable with that. Um, and in terms of uh, like a healthcare, you know, with this virus thing, this sector will come into play a little bit as well. Like, do you also uh, like pay special attention? Because healthcare is somewhat sits between like consumer and state. You know, both uh, spend quite a lot of money. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, the, the healthcare uh, sector here, whether you're talking about China, whether you're talking about in the U.S., is. Um, you know, a, a, a confluence of, um, you know, benefiting from really, you know, demographics and, and the aging of, uh, of many of the more wealthy populations um, on Earth, um, but also in many countries facing uh, political challenges and, uh, and headwinds. So uh, we, we kind of go through on a, on a global basis and try and identify the companies that have good organic growth rates. And, I mean, nobody has no exposure to, to political risk, but, but the ones that are most likely going to be able to, to, to manage it and, and benefit from some of the um, you know, demographic uh, changes in the, uh, the global economy. Mm-hmm. When you invest uh, globally, particularly like emerging market or in Europe, um, do, how do you think about like hedging for your portfolio? Like, do you do that or like, you know, what, what kind of strategies you deploy? For the most part, we do not. Um, the belief being that that part of uh, a diversified portfolio, a globally diversified portfolio, is exposure to to different currencies. That's sort of our um, our baseline, uh, our sort of default view. Um, if there are instances when we feel that, uh, for instance, that the uh, the dollar may be uh, strong or is likely to be strong versus the rest of the world. We do have a, a specialist manager that, that hedges everything back into the U.S. dollar. So we, we do have that optionality, but, but typically we actually seek the diversification of, of multiple currencies. What about, what about alternatives here? Like, Is there other, when you think about the, just that volatility levels, things that might keep people invested, uh, any of these diversifiers or things with the ultra-low yields, things that you're looking for to, to try to round out equities today? Yes, I mean, I think we've, you know, for, for clients where it's appropriate, we've been, we've been advocates of, um, you know, hedged strategies, certain hedge funds um, on a diversified basis that, that are not highly correlated to the, the stock and bond markets. And, you know, as, as we all know, that generally, you could argue that hasn't been necessary, more or less, for, for, for a decade, right? Because, you know, you haven't re- nobody's really wanted to hedge above average equity market returns. Uh, it's times like the last couple of weeks that make people remember the benefit of having a portion of their portfolio uh, that is not going along for the ride with the stock market. So um, we, we do think that that's uh, an attractive place for uh, people to be, and especially since the, the fixed income side of the ledger, while it's, it's generating very nice total returns here with these gap down in, in, in Treasury yields, um, it, it's hard to look at where yields are today and say that's that's good value, and that's going to be a great source of protection over time. So these hedge strategies, um, you know, we think should probably play a bigger role in most uh, investors' portfolios than they do currently. Um, in terms of, uh, like, um, when you think about uh, alternatives, like, does your clients have any appetite for private equity? You know, things, um, there's uh, some of the private equity firms are getting into uh, this, uh, getting, like, getting into more uh, kind of uh, targeting uh, retail investors or, like, a high net worth uh, clients? Yes, we've, we've had an um, active private equity program for our clients for, oh gosh, for more, more than 25 years. And, but I would say that in, uh, recent years, there's been 
there's been more interest, and uh, and that's been been part of our story that that more uh, you know long-term growth-oriented investors should consider um, you know an allocation to to private markets. And uh, part of the part of this is is opportunity. Uh, you know where the opportunity set is. We know that over time, fewer and fewer companies are going public. Companies are staying private longer, and in some cases, will stay private forever. And so, more of the you know, sort of value creation in the life cycle of a company is happening while they're private. And so, again, for long-term investors who can afford some illiquidity in their portfolio, having exposure and access to that uh, makes sense. And then we, if you step back and look at the historical returns over, over the decades, uh, you know, you have typically earned uh, a, a 3 to 4 percentage point a year illiquidity premium over the, the public equity markets. So yeah, we're we're advocates of private equity. Thank you. Um, in, in you in in the earlier conversation, you mentioned you know you're still looking at you know value quality stocks. Um, you know stocks at, at relatively uh, attractive uh, fundamentals. Um, at you know not too expensive level. Do you like? Do you select these stocks based on some kind of style rotation or? And sorry? we we've got a sort of final final minute countdown here, Dave. Um, we, we don't. We, we have a, a strategies that are, that are um, you know, driven off of, of some different fundamentals. Our largest strategy really focuses on free cash flow generation by companies, and, and then whether the company makes good use of that free cash flow to uh, to enhance shareholder returns. So we're more, fo- more focused on that than you know whether something classifies as a value stock or or, or a growth stock. Well, this has been great. Any final places people can keep in touch with your work where they can follow you? Uh, certainly at the, the uh, website for uh, CIBC U.S. Private Wealth Management. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to hear how you guys are looking at the world. Thanks for joining us on our show today. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to just point out, you know, I'd like to thank our, our producer, Patty Hall, who's always here helping us in the studio. Uh, Dion Simpkins, our sound engineer. Uh, you could always listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast, which we were very excited this week was named by Business Insider as one of the top 10 investment podcasts. And so you can always listen to us on, on the podcast apps as well. Um, you know, it's been a, it's been a great, uh, Great show. A lot of volatility. It's always good to get Professor Siegel's big picture worldview on what's going on during these volatile times. And I think uh, he helps us stay invested over the long run with his messages there. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.